It's Too Difficult to Love You Anymore. Laura Beth L.B. Burkhalter from Red Rock Recovery joins us to talk about addiction, getting cut off from support, treatment, recovery, and naltrexone administration. She has a big story and talks about the importance of getting the truth out on the table. Sweeping things under the rug is how people die. Enjoy. Welcome to the Illuminate Recovery Podcast. We shed light on mental health issues, mental illness, and addiction recovery. Ways to cope, manage, and inspire. Beyond the self-care we will discuss, you may need the help of a licensed professional. My name is Kurt Nider. I'm a husband, a father, entrepreneur, a handyman, and a student of life. I avoid conflict, I deflect with humor, and I'm fascinated by the human experience. And I'm Shelly Mangum. I am a clinical mental health counselor, and my favorite role of all times is grandma. I am a seeker of truth, and I feel like life should be approached with tremendous curiosity. I ask the dumb questions. I fill in the gaps. The Illuminate Recovery Podcast is brought to you by Illuminate Billing Advocates. Make billing and collection simple with leader in substance abuse and mental health billing services. Verification and analysis of benefits, pre-authorizations, utilization management, accurate claim submission and management, denial and appeal management, and industry-leading reporting. Improve your practice's cash flow and your ability to help your clients with Illuminate Billing Advocates. Uh, today is uh, is a great day, and I'm super excited. We've got L.B. Burkhalter with us today, and um, L.B. is an alumni and community relations manager at Red Rock Recovery Center in Denver, Colorado. Um, L.B. has um, is involved in a lot of boards and boards of directors, and they have long names to them, so I'm not going to say them all, but if you want to talk about those, L.B., you can. Um, But something that did catch my attention is she is a certified naltrexone administration trainer. She's a recovery coach, a co-chair of TPAS in Colorado. Um, She's also um, a founding board member of the Colorado Artists in Recovery and serves as an inspector for the Colorado Association of Recovery Residences. LB is passionate about creating recovery communities through music and creating sober safe spaces in the LBGTQ plus community. LB is a human in long-term recovery who celebrated five years of sobriety in November of 2020. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool, LB. Um, Thanks for being on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me guys, it's an honor. And I did fail to mention that Kurt is hanging out with us too, Kurt. (laughs) I am here, I am here. I usually, I usually show up about like halfway through, but <laughs> I'm here. He's very tolerant of my forgetfulness, so that's fantastic. Um, LB, just take a minute and give us some background. Um, you know, obviously not everybody dreams about being in recovery, but but you are in this industry and you've got a recovery story. Kind of give us some back background on that. Um, so let's see. Um, so I was born in a really small Southern town, uh, Natchez, Mississippi. So pretty far from Colorado where Natchez is one of those places that fails to acknowledge the fact that mental health and substance use disorders exist um, because it doesn't, doesn't look, look good on the families of people that have loved ones or children, you know, that are, that are struggling with these issues. 
Um, I luckily had a doctor as a mom that like started to notice that I was a little different than other kids, you know, like I was more angry. I was more anxious, um, couldn't pay attention. And so they started kind of dealing with some mental health stuff with me when I was around seven. Um, and then I started getting into performing um, music and dancing and stuff and modeling professionally when I was really young. And that led me quickly into a space where drugs were cool and kind of part of the scene and uh, really kind of helped fuel creativity for me. Um, so that started around age 12. Um, and then I went away to boarding school when I was 14 for fine arts for classical vocals. And that's when like drugs really took off for me. And by this time I was already struggling with some pretty severe trauma, some pretty um, intense eating disorders and substances just started kind of like piling on um, cocaine mainly um, and hallucinogens. So my very first stint uh, treatment was at age 15. And at this time I was hardcore into cocaine and methamphetamines. Um, very malnourished and very sick and struggling with a lot of mental health. Um, so my first experience with having someone tell me that I was an alcoholic, you know, and that I was going to have to be sober for the rest of my life was at age 15. And how on earth can you wrap your mind around that at 15 years old that, you know, for the next however many years, you know, decades, I'm going to have to be this sober person. Um, Treatment didn't stick at that age. You know, I went through wilderness treatment, came home. Uh, they wanted to put me in like a two year program. My family wasn't willing to let me go for that long. Um, so I, you know, like lived the life of active drug addiction, which was pretty miserable, filled with trauma, as well as like being diagnosed bipolar and dealing with all that and trying to be medicated on top of substance use doesn't really work. Um, so I ended up going back to treatment again at 19. Um, and at that time, somewhat successfully for a couple of months, got off of cocaine, um, found what I thought was the love of my life. I thought a marriage and a child, you know, and like business would make me normal. I just needed to do normal things, you know, to like be like everybody else. Um, so I got married and I had a child and then had some pretty significant like losses and more trauma in my immediate family. Um, so I once again, like pack up, move across the country. Cause I think that all these things are going to fix me like relocating, you know, changing my last name, adding a child into this picture. Um, you know, like I just would try to cling on to anything that I thought was normal. Um, so I'm really far away from my family again, which always was easier for me because then they couldn't see just how bad I was doing. And my family love them to death, you know, but like they're really good at just turning their cheek and not really paying attention um, as to like what's going on. And as long as it's not in their direct face or kind of affecting their day to day, like they're not really bothered with it, um, which these were, you know, these were my demons. So and I own that. But uh, it was easier for me to do it far away. So being that far um, with a young child and a business and a husband, um, things got really dark really fast uh, because what I found out was I broke my foot 
And for the first time in my life, I'd never been into opiates. Um, you know, like I was always, uh, how fast can I go? I want to run through everything and be awake 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And I had this injury and they prescribed me painkillers. And I like got that first real, like 48 hours taste of opiates. And for the first time in as long as I could remember, I could like finally take a breath. You know, like I'm, I can like relive it over and over because it was like for once my brain stopped yelling at me. Um, my body stopped yelling at me and I was able to breathe. And that was it. Like for the next uh, I was like I, I like to say hardcore addicted to substances for 15 years. And the first six was cocaine. And then the last nine was fentanyl and heroin. Um and it, it, it was like, it was on from there. It was like anything that got in my way of getting that opiate use had to go away. Um, I, I left my business. I left my husband. I took my kid, moved across the country, kept relocating, um, would try to fill the void with like other, I would try to surround myself with people that opiate use was normal, you know, because like my husband was freaked out about it and like, didn't understand like what was wrong with me. Um, and so like anything I could do to get away from people that that wasn't their norm. So I was surrounding myself with people that wanted to get high 24 hours a day. Um, I, I did continue to have more and more breaks in my legs. Uh, there was like, a, I had a weird medical condition where I, I was doing long distance running on heroin and opiates. And so I was getting really gnarly, like stress fractures in my legs. And it was from hematomas in my bone marrow that would get so large, the bone would break. And so I was going to like all these doctors and specialists, but being very um, like drug addict seeking in the process. Um, and I won't go into detail because I don't want anyone to learn any bad behaviors from that. But let's just say that I was getting way over prescribed. I was prescribed to fentanyl, lots of pills with multiple um, identities, you know, and like I was able to kind of maintain with those, but at the same time buying more fentanyl and heroin on the streets. Um, and I was, I'd been on benzos at this point for probably since I was 18. So like, you know, a combination of benzos, fentanyl, heroin, like what can go wrong? You know, <laughs> you're all set. <laughs> yeah. What could go wrong there? Um, and then that behavior continued for years to the point where all I wanted to do was sit and sit in my home alone um, and just kind of not exist. Like there were times when I, I don't think I moved for days on end. And it's so sad for me to think about now, you know, like how much time just like literally just, just flew by my face and I didn't even like know time was passing. Um, because what ended up happening is like, I burned every relationship around me, you know, like my family wanted nothing to do with me. They knew that like something was very wrong, but they didn't know just how bad it had gotten. Um, and I remember calling my dad and I was like, I think, I think I, I think I need help. Like this is like, life's gotten really dark and I just want to die. And he was like, we've done this dance with you. God, my dad would like kill me for saying this. He's like, we've done this dance with you time and time again. Um, 
why don't you just go to the Suboxone clinic like everyone else does? And I was like, okay. Like I even called a treatment center that was like willing to fly me out the next day. And he was like, you have a child, you have things to take care of. Like no one's going to do this for you. Just go to the Suboxone clinic and like do whatever you have to do. And I was like, okay. So I did. And then all I did was sell the Suboxone. There was no outpatient associated, you know, there was no therapy associated. It was just like, here's your Suboxone strips, have fun. Um, so like that didn't go over well. Um, so another year went by and this was exactly a year from that time I called asking for help. Um, almost exactly a year later, I ended up in treatment, but I'll back up a few weeks. Um, I basically woke up and I was nine months pregnant and I was so dissociated and in such a state of delusion that it's like I didn't know what was going on with my body, my life. I was just in this cloud um, and I, I like come to and I'm basically having another child and they're looking at me going like, what's wrong with this infant? And my mom, who's a doctor, mind you, is sitting in the room and she looks at me and she's like, they just came in with a with a social worker and your child is in withdrawals from heroin, from opiates. And like the look on her face, she was so disgusted. And my parents have always been my biggest supporters, but my biggest enablers at the same time. Um, so to see her so disgusted with me was like, I was like, how, how quickly can I get out of this? Because this is so uncomfortable. I can't, I can't do this. Like, I just can't face any of this. I was facing like federal wire charge, like uh, wire charge. Uh, oh my gosh. Federal, <laughs> federal uh, wire fraud charges because I had been like taking so much money from my dad and he was just like letting me do it. And then it got like on like feds radar and it was really bad. Um, so I'm like in the hospital, my dad's confronting me with these charges from feds. My mom is like, your kid has just been born addicted to drugs. Um, what is happening? And so they take my child to the NICU. He's detoxed, you know, for three weeks uh, on morphine. And it's probably to this day, the most painful thing I've ever, you know, had to witness drawn out like that and know that I was the direct cause of it. Um, so he gets out at six weeks old and comes to live with me. And it's just me and him. Cause at this point, my mom's taking care of my eight-year-old son. Um, and that, I mean, it didn't last very long, you know, like by a weekend, my dad had showed up uh, to my apartment in Baton Rouge and came in and he found, you know, like lock boxes of needles and paraphernalia and all kinds of bad stuff. And he's like, you can't have these children. Like you can't take care of yourself. Um, this has to end. And I remember my mom, he put my mom on speaker and they're divorced. So it was like really interesting to have them both like right there with it, you know? And um, she was like, you're going to die. Is that what you want? Like you are going to die. You have a six week old child. You have an eight year old son that adores you. You've somehow managed to be a mom to this kid. Like you're going to die and they have to grow up. Like knowing that, that you chose drugs over them. Um, God, <laughs> it was awful, you know? Um, so the very, I'm 20, I was 29 years old at this point. 
So I've been basically out, not gone to treatment for the last 10 years. And so I went to treatment the very next morning and that was August of 2015. I did 42 days, which is like a normal stint in treatment, got out, um, didn't do anything they told me to do. Like didn't get a sponsor, said I had one, wrote it on the whiteboard in the sober living house um, did, and didn't do anything they said. And so of course that led to a really nasty six week relapse where I overdosed, was in a coma for three days with a blood sugar of 760 and pronounced dead. You know, like it was like, that was it. I don't, the doctors were like, I don't know how like you're alive, but you must be here for a reason. Like, please get some help. And I walked out of the hospital November 3rd, injected the same drugs I had just overdosed on um, and lived that way until Thanksgiving day, like homeless in my car in New Orleans. And I called my dad and I was like, can you just send me, you know, it's Thanksgiving. Like, can you just send me $5 for gas? And my dad's like the, he's got a great sense of humor. Like this man will make a joke out of absolutely anything. And it's like his way, you know, of avoidance. And in this moment, um, I'm like begging him, you know, just for five bucks for gas. And he's like, no. And I was like, but I could die out here. Like I'm going to run out of gas, you know, like in the middle of New Orleans. And he's like, I can't care anymore. It's too difficult to love you anymore. And those words, like my dad's always been, I've always been a daddy's girl. He's my best friend, you know? And it was like for my dad who would literally do absolutely anything in the world for me, whether it hurt me or helped me because he would just do anything I asked, could no longer even love me. Um, and so I drove, I uh, drove myself to treatment somehow. I don't even know how I got there, honestly. Um, I, and somehow managed to get drugs too. Like, I don't know how we do it sometimes. It's, it's crazy. Um, and I checked in on Thanksgiving day of 2015 and I've been sober ever since. Um, I walked in there and told them I was here for detox only and that I was going back to my sober living in Baton Rouge. And they were like, nah, I don't think so. Like, <laughs> nah, -uh. um, my mom called, I, I tried to AMA from detox actually, and walked out and my dad had taken my car in the middle of the night. So that was really embarrassing because I was in the middle of nowhere in Louisiana. Um, and I mean, that in and of itself probably kept me there and saved my life too. Um, not to mention like the really harsh words that he said, you know, before I went in there, which is understandable. Um, and a good reminder, you know, like every time I say it out loud, it brings me to tears, but it reminds me of like how bad life really was then um, and how, how much pain he must have been in to have to say something like that to me. Um, so I decided to do at that, that I just like completely surrendered and I let go. And I was like, you know, I guess I really have no idea what I'm doing. Do I, do I really want to die or do I like, do I want to figure this out? And they suggested that I do a year of treatment again. They've been saying that since I was 15 uh, and my family and I finally listened. And so I did 10 days there, um, flew out to Cal uh, California, God, flew out to Colorado, um, 
and did uh, three months at the Recovery Village and then did six months at Aspen Ridge Recovery in Lakewood, um, which is where I like graduated, got out, you know, did sober living and outpatient. And by the time I was done, I had a year, you know, and life was so had already become so amazing by that time that I didn't I didn't ever want to go backwards. You know, it was like when you when you look at a year under your belt, like a year of sobriety time and. I had already like made amends at nine months sober and had worked all 12 steps. I got, I got sober through 12 step um, and treatment, but it was like, I'd, I'd come too far and I'd worked too hard to like ever want to go backwards. I'd never had that much time sober in my entire life. You know, I couldn't do 24 hours, much less a month or anything, you know, so a year, it was so huge. So I didn't want to leave. Um, my I'd like created a family at Aspen Ridge. And so I started volunteering there every week for two and a half years until they finally were like, please just come work for us, you know? And so I worked there. That's how I got my start, you know, in this industry. And I worked there and then eventually started working my way up and, you know, like worked my way over into like management and director roles with Red Rock. So it's like, yeah. So here I am almost six years later and it's mind blowing to like, think about like what all I've done in this amount of time. Oh my word. LB, that's an incredible story. Like that, like I'm on the, the edge of my seat and I'm, I'm watching cause I'm watching you. I know not everybody's going to see your face, but you're this vivacious woman that's got all this energy and this emotion and this, I mean, everything's right there on the, on the surface. Right. <clears throat> and this uh, incredible life where you've had all this opportunity. And I think at 15, you went into recovery at 15 when most kids, that's when they're starting to dabble in drugs. And, and, and then you talk about how intense that was as at having your second baby. And, and in my head, I'm like, what made you stay? What made you stay? And, and, and I'm imagining that mother's pull and that mother's, you know, wanting to be with her baby. And the same time, everything in your whole body says, I just want to run. I just want to be out of here. I want to make this disappear. Oh my heck, what a story. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely intense. Uh, and it really, it's so crazy that it feels like yesterday when I retell it, but it has been years and years, you know, and I've like mended all of these amazing relationships in my family and um, my children still don't live with me. Like if anyone's curious, you know, like they still don't live with me, um, but it's, it's become our normal. You know, uh, my mom has, continued to raise my 14 year old son. He's 14 now. Um, and my dad has raised the baby who will be six this month. Um, and it's, you know, they live across the street from each other and they see each other every day. And while I'm sure it's so wild to most people, they're like, what is this situation? Like it really has become our norm. And my son comes to visit. I go there to visit. The little one's been out here. Um, and it's just like we make it work and we're just really transparent now. We kind of all as a family learned lessons through this, which is transparency saves lives. Like turning your cheek and hoping that this problem goes away isn't going to work for anyone. Um, and so we like openly talk about mental health, substance use, eating disorder, behaviors, all of these things. And it's like there's it's the littlest one doesn't obviously have as much information as the 14 year old. But it's like we have a relationship now where it's like if somebody even jokes about drugs at school, he's like he's texting me about it. 
you know, because we just like, we want these things to be on the surface at all times because like sweeping them under the rug, which is what my family did for a really, really long time is how people die. And I've watched it. My, you know, my little hometown, um, the suicide rate and overdose rate is insane. And I look around at everybody I grew up with and every one of them is gone. I lost every one of them to this disease in one way or the other. Um, and it's just like, that's something I think I wish more people would do more of is like talk openly and break down barriers to treatment and break down conversation barriers around mental health and substance use, because it's not going to go away. Well, it's not, and there's such a gap. <clears throat> and, and I think about where you were at at 15. I don't know that you were really open to listen, even if they were on board, right? And were, cause they got you into treatment and they wanted you to get better, but, but yeah, it's not like that generation is not open about talking about it. They were just the diehards. We're going to push through and we're going to do whatever we have to. And if it kills us, it kills us, but we're not talking about this stuff. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and so what a shift and, and how incredible, how incredibly courageous your dad was to be willing to come and get your car and tell you no. Right. I mean, these pivotal moments that, you know, makes you want to just kill them and, and, you know, hate them with everything in you. And it's the very moments that probably save your life. Yeah. And I find myself telling that to families nowadays, you know, like your, your kid may be really pissed in that moment, but I promise you they'll look back and appreciate it because it doesn't, you, that resentment can't last because as you heal as a person in recovery, you understand that like, that was the final straw for them. It was that or lose their child forever. You know, and that was all, all they ever wanted, um, you know, was to see me become the person I was supposed to be. And, you know, like all these, like these harsh, these harsh things that they said and like these harsh lessons um, are like exactly what got me to where I am today. Mm. So talk about what you are doing today. I mean, I could ask you a bazillion questions about your story and, and I might still do it, but but talk about what you're doing right now, because you talked about having bipolar. That doesn't just go away, right? You have to learn to manage that and manage mental health. Talk about how you do that and how you stay, you know, keep yourself in a good place and what your tools are that you use and how bipolar still plays a role in your life. Yeah. So um, on a on a daily basis, um, I take no medications for mental health. Like I have not taken mental health meds in probably eight years. Um, and I, I mean, I do, I do great. Uh, benzos less. I mean, I got off of those around the same time I went to treatment. Um, so I, I still struggle with panic and anxiety disorder. I'm still very ADHD. Um, and I, I use mindfulness a lot, you know, like a lot of mindfulness techniques come into my day to day first. Like I'm very regimented. I was, was never very scheduled, obviously, in active addiction. Um, and so like some of the things I learned in treatment on like setting an alarm clock and waking up at the same time, going to bed at the same time, um, you know, like in scheduling out my day still plays a role. Um, you know, time to clean the house, uh, you know, deep clean on Sunday, like all of these things that I learned, I still do every day. So I, I wake up and I set my intentions for the day. I do meditation. Um, and I, I have a very set routine, you know, and then I work and I work really hard. Um, and then I'm I'm real. I'm a huge advocate for physical fitness and nutrition in recovery from all things. Um, so 
nutrition plays a huge part in my life, uh, you know, as well as like vitamins, supplements, and then I'm an active, I bicycle and power lift. Um, and that helps me with some of my like anxiety and, and aggression uh, because I have such a healthy outlet to put it into. And then at the end of all that, like how much more steam could you have, you know, like at the end of a very long, like busy work day and all of these other side projects that I do. And then my gym life, it's like, I'm exhausted come bedtime. Um, and it's, you know, and then I find, I find time for like 12 step and personal recovery and stuff and all that too. Um, I, I haven't seen a therapist since treatment. It's something that I'll probably, you know, like step back into, but it's difficult when you work in this industry because you know, everyone and everyone knows you. So it's been a little tricky narrowing that down. Um, but yeah, I mean, just some of my, my everyday tools would definitely be mindfulness um, and like just being active, you know, like it helps, it helps me not get depressed. Um, it helps me stay focused and yeah, like, and you know, just being transparent too and things like when something pops up and I'm not feeling all that great because I surround myself with amazing human beings in recovery, I'm able to say that, you know, like I'm having a bad day today. Like what's going on here? Um, you know, and like people can kind of, we can like walk through, you know, like what may be affecting it. Maybe I need sunshine. Maybe it's winter, you know, like some of these seasonal things. Um, but I haven't, yeah, I haven't felt the need or had the need for mental health meds or further treatment since. That's a big deal. Cause some people would, some people would shun you for that LB. <laughs> it's like medications are there for a reason. They're going to help you, but I also see your energy, right? And they're like, it's contagious. It's absolutely contagious. And if I could go through life with as much energy as you now, it has its black, it has its dark sides, right? But, but you know, all the things that you have energy to do, and then you just wear yourself out so that you can at least fall asleep at the end of the day and feel like, you know, I win today, right? Yeah, I accomplish a lot and that feels great. You know, and like, I'm, I'm so fulfilled spiritually, mentally, emotionally, physically that there's really nothing lacking. Tell me, tell me about your work. So you're a now a naltrexone administration trainer, administration trainer. Did I say that right? Yes. <laughs> I was talking to somebody the other day about naltrexone and how, you know, there's this movement to try and get it everywhere that it needs to be because it saves lives and, and it's a big deal. Talk about that just a little bit. So um, what I was finding working, working at my last job where I was involved with alumni every single day was um, I, I got a, I got a phone call at, you know, like at midnight and I answered of course, and it was someone who was with someone overdosing. Um, and I got there before the paramedics did. So I was able to administer uh, it, it was the naltrexone, so the injection. I was able to administer it before the paramedics got there. It took them 22 minutes to respond. Um, and that, when the when the paramedics got there, they obviously had Narcan on them, but the police officers that arrived at the same time did not. Um, and they really kind of had this outlook of, like, this is Denver County, right? Like, Denver Police Department doesn't carry Narcan. Like, are you kidding me? And so I got, I got like really emotional about it and was like, this kid would have died if I wouldn't have answered my phone and gotten there, you know, like bef before they did, because they wouldn't have had Narcan even if they'd gotten there before me. 
Um, and so I like started this movement and it was like, how can, how can I use my mom who's a physician to like help me create a training presentation that's like understandable to, to the public where people feel safe to ask questions um, and we can get like Narcan and Naltrexone in as many hands as possible. Um, and so I started doing like community trainings on it and started going to tattoo shops and gas stations and PetSmart and like all these places where people overdose in the bathroom and they don't know what to do about it. And people are dying because it takes the EMTs so long to get there. Not their fault. They're overworked, you know, but it's we have there's got to be another line of defense, you know. And so I, I just started trying to, like, get it out there as much as humanly possible. And that's how, like, all of that was created. Well, it's incredible. And, and it does. It saves lives. I mean, I was I was reading a, <clears throat> an assessment of a client the other day, and I think they had to administer it three times but it saved their life, right? It just saved their life. And and so to me, it's like, I mean, I, I play both sides. It's like, well, if we put it out there, is somebody gonna steal it? Is somebody gonna misuse it? What are the downsides of putting it everywhere? None, there are none. Um, a toddler can, can, put now, can put Narcan up their nose 15 times and it can't harm them. There is no way to misuse it. There is no way to harm someone with it. Um, and unless they have a very, very rare, like underlying allergy or condition to the, the the substances in the Narcan or Naltrexone, which are identical, just different, you know, just different ways to, to administer it. Um, but there is no downside. So what, a lot of times what I say is like, when in doubt, just shoot them with Narcan, like, because you can't hurt anything. It won't reverse benzos, it won't reverse alcohol, it won't reverse any of that, but what it will do is if there's any fentanyl in the cocaine even that they just did, it will kick those those like synthetic opioids out of their receptors. So why not? You know, like fentanyl's in everything now. Like the only thing you can do is like try to try to act on like what you can see and what you can help with while EMTs are coming. Um, so no downside. Put it everywhere. It should be literally everywhere. They have Sharps containers in Walmart bathrooms. Why don't they have Narcan? I love it. I love it. And and I asked that question on purpose because I think that's these are questions that come up in people's minds of, no, we can't like there's we got to be careful and we got to be, you know, you know, plan for all the risks. But really, there's the, the risks. The risks are so minor compared to the lives that it saves. And you're a lot of, I know that a lot of people are like, yeah, but this, and I, when I say a lot of people, I mean, maybe, um, maybe normies that don't like, ha haven't really dealt with this firsthand may, may look at it as this person has made a choice to do these drugs. Like, why are we saving them? Because look at me, like six years ago, I died, you know, and I was given the chance to come back and be of use and be of service and save hundreds of other people's lives. Like, why wouldn't you want someone to fulfill a purpose like that by like by one one little dose of a medication, you know, that could give them the chance to be like, you know what? I don't want I don't want this. Like, I don't want to die. I I, I want to you know, like I, I want to figure out how to not do this anymore. Um, and it's the amount of people that we are losing to overdose is so overwhelming and mind blowing. Think of all the people in the like in these this these numbers these huge numbers that we're losing that could have been our next you know scientists doctors like you know our, our leaders in this field 
Um, and it's like we're we're losing them by the hundreds. We well, I want to bank off of what you just said because, because, and I've said this a million times, maybe not in the podcast, but the, the people that I have met that are in recovery for substance abuse are some of the highest, highest functioning people I have ever met in my life. And so what you say is not just what if, it is the truth that these are incredible people. And I'm looking at your story and, and you started so young into the drugs. It, it, it people do not understand that. Yeah, you may have had a choice at one point, but really, as a teenager, there's no choice there. It's you know, it's available, and you start taking it. But when you know, as you're in the hospital having your second child, there's no longer a choice. There's no choice. Your body, every part of your body, is saying this is the most important thing in my life, and I'm going to die if I don't get it. And how you ever stayed with that baby in that situation is incredible to me, and speaks to the power of of motherhood, right? Um, but people do not understand how difficult and how powerless someone becomes, you know, due to a drug and due to the longevity of that in your system. It changes your biology. It changes those neural pathways. You're helpless to it, right? There's no way that you can stop that pattern until you get help. And so people don't understand. Your dad and your mom didn't understand, right? Yeah. And I, I remember getting a glimpse of it when I was in treatment in my, like, they were going around and asking, you know, and my mom, my mom said, I knew that there was a serious problem when I saw my daughter do something like this to an innocent child, because that's not who she is. She would have never intentionally harmed an unborn baby. Um, and I, I got a glimpse at to like into them, like starting to, to understand. Um, but it was, it was really, a friend of mine who's an interventionist broke it down to me and she was like, you know, when at that point in time, like your, their attachments don't matter anymore. Like loved ones don't matter anymore. Your day-to-day -day actions don't matter anymore because you're in a, you're in a, an area of like fight or flight and survival at all times. So it's like, I have to do this or I'll die. But I'm, but I'm also like, I think I'm going to die anyway. Like, it's just this constant fear of, like, I'm going to die if I don't do this, but I'm going to die if I do this also. Like, it's like, it's just, it's just survival. And it's, you know, like, it's hard to, it's hard to like remember or um, like put myself back in those days where I, where I did things like that 24 hours a day. Um, but it really is something that it, it's not a choice anymore. Like once my, my mind had been living that way for 15 years, like I, I had more life living like that than I did as a child, you know, because I really started a lot of these addictive behaviors through eating disorders. I I've had my first eating disorder behaviors at eight years old. So it's like from eight until 29, like what I had seven years of life experience before that. Like, what was I going to bank on? Yeah. That was not life experience, right? <laughs> yeah. You, I was you, a child. If you could go back, right. Cause now you're looking back at that with all of these experiences afterwards, what do you go back and do differently with that seven, eight, nine year old? You know, I've thought about that and uh, I don't know. Um, it's, I don't know because some of the, some of the resources, especially in that area of the country, like there wasn't a lot available back then. And there wasn't, uh, I mean, I, this industry has come so far with mental health and substance use disorder treatment. Um, 
that I'm not sure. I'm not sure what would be different there, um, except for more open conversation, you know, like with family. Um, instead of my mom, I think trying to label some of those things with medical terms, just like having a, a conversation with her daughter probably would have changed a lot. Um, you know, like I, I had, how does us, how does an eight year old kid have like no self-esteem or confidence? You know, like I had body dysmorphia by the time I was 10, like, what do you do? What do you do with that? Um, but at this, you know, at the same time, it's like all of these things shaped me to be the human being that I am today. Um, and I'm able to relate with so many people on so many levels that now I wouldn't change anything. No, and I think you answered the question, what do you do about the eight-year-old that's still in that position? You know, we, we love them as much as we can and we help as much as we can, but you show them how to heal, right? You go through your program and you continue on that course of recovery. You're showing your kids, right? You're showing your kids how to heal. You're showing your kids how to recover. You're showing them how to be authentic and transparent. And your whole family is healing based on your recovery, I think that's that's sometimes all we left with and what we have to do. And, and and maybe, you know, we think we can't go save the eight-year-old and we would love to be able to go save the eight-year-old. But look at you. Look at you and look at what you've become. And, and you didn't do that without an awful hard, hard road ahead, right? Yeah. Which it's cool. It's cool. And I ask myself that too, right? I mean, I, I have, I know people that that struggle with mental illness and and they bring children into the world and it's like, how do I save that child? And I'm like, I can't save the child. I can be there. I can show up and I can protect them if I think something's really horrible happening. But, but you know, we don't take children away from moms if they do enough good. Right. Um, and so, so I don't know, I throw those things around in my own head is we can save them all, but we can certainly, per, you know, have these conversations and improve the way we address it, you know, in the future. Yeah. Be, I mean, being able to being able to see some like so many of these things are so apparent to me now, you know, like when I uh, even just in my 14 year old son, like I'm able to notice behaviors that to me are like alarms, um, you know, and like we can kind of address some of those things like head on with social anxiety, with he even like started having some eating disorder behaviors uh, like pr about a year ago. And it was like my mom and I were on the phone, like talking about it, like how do we have these conversations with him? You know, he's a 14 year old boy that's 90 pounds and five foot six. Like this is, you know, like, and he thinks he's, he thinks he's overweight. Like, and so we just kind of like hit it head on with like conversations and no judgment. Like we always hit it with no judgment. This is how you feel. Like I validate that, but like, this is also what I see. And like, how can, you know, like, how can we talk about this? Um, and it's just, yeah, we just have a lot of open, honest conversations and that I think will help shape shape this like next generation uh, because like the more we do that, the more we'll save. Yeah, I agree so much so. So talk about, um, there's so much we could talk about. Talk about what you're doing right now. You know, you come from a, a modeling and a, and a music background and you've got all of these talents. How does that fit into your life today? So I started writing music in treatment again. Um, I was terrified because substances had always fueled my creativity for so long that I thought I'd lose that forever. Um, so I started writing music in treatment, but like wouldn't play it in front of anyone. Um, and I was, I, I think I was just so terrified to play sober that, you know, I didn't really know what to do with the anxiety. 
Um, and then got an opportunity to help start like a, like a first sober open mic type thing. And I had no intentions of getting up there and playing and then kind of got pushed into doing it. Like I just helped put it on. And then they were like, go up, like, go, like, go, go play. And um, I got up there and I was terrified and I played in front of this group of sober human beings. Um, and the support was tremendous. And I was like, how do I keep doing this? So I then kept playing and kept writing and kept recording and releasing. Um, and it's so funny because my, I say funny, uh, to me it's funny because my music is so dark and so sad. Um, and it's about all the loss and the hurt and stuff that I've experienced through like finding recovery. Um, and I, I'm not like shy about that anymore. You know, it's like, it's literally my soul that I'm pouring out there. And I use that as a way to spread hope. Um, so I started finding ways to like incorporate like sober open mics into work and then got, um, the the executive director of Colorado Artists in Recovery asked me to come on at the very beginning and be a founding board member for CARE. Um, and we've just like tried to use creativity and art and all kinds of shapes and forms to help people find wellness, you know, like and in recovery from anything. Um, and so I, you know, it's it's really about like conquering fear and doing it in a non-judgmental space. Um, and kind of like finding other pathways to heal. Uh, so, I mean, yeah, I use it. I use music every day too and perform and still do these like sober open mics. And it's a, it's a huge deal for me. You know, like I'm able to get a really strong message out there with my music um, that, you know, I don't know, it really, it kind of shows people like how dark it was for me, but then I like stop playing and I'm this like super happy, bubbly, energetic person. They're like, where did this come from? Like, I never would have dreamed that something like this, like this type of music and these lyrics would have come out of you because most of these people have only ever seen me sober. Um, so it's a really, it's a transformational process, you know, like art in general um, is a transformative craft um, and you get to really see people find themselves through it. It's beautiful. Well, and it sounds like you're you're working through that grieving process in your music, and and so I can hear you know I can hear when you say you you may look at going back to a therapist and you know working through some of that stuff. You're doing it like you're in the heart of it, right? And and maybe it's that idea that you're ready for the next step, right? What's the next step? Because I think for me, and I imagine this is true for you, that I got to do my work because if I don't do my work, it sneaks up on me and comes out sideways and and looks in you know, I show up in ways I don't want to show up. So you, you just never stop, right? It's a lifelong process. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think sometimes life feels so good that sometimes I forget, you know, like some of the, the dark pieces that I still need to work on. And I have done that with music. Um, I, I was like, I was having a situation where my dad was adopting my youngest son and it like hit me like a ton of bricks, man. Like I was rocked to the floor you know, and I was, I was, I had no thoughts of using, it was just really severe depression. And, but I couldn't cry. I like, while I was like in the fetal position, I still wasn't crying or really processing the emotion. And I went and wrote a song about it. Like I just, I just like dove in and I released buckets and buckets of guilt and shame and sadness. And it, 
I, it, I wasn't like cured after that, but it was so therapeutic um, that I, I got so fulfilled from it and was able to kind of really accept a lot of it through that. And I knew it was the next best thing. Wow. Yeah, I can tell how powerful it is. Um, LB, what's in the future for you? Oh man, sky's the limit. You know, like it really is. I have my hands in, in a lot of different areas, you know, like of the recovery world. And, um, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I do, I do have like dreams and wishes of one day having like women sober living, you know, for, for women with children, uh, because I, it is an area I'm so passionate about now. Um, but there's also like tons of areas to grow with like the artist aspect in recovery. And then, I mean, I have my full-time job at Red Rock, which I just adore and get to do this stuff on the front lines every single day is, is, you know, is life changing. Um, yeah, I don't know. And then I also run like a social media and like a recovery merch store called Recovered Humans. So I get to like do some other creative stuff like that, you know, like through, through like funny recovery shirt t-shirts and merch and stuff. Um, so I don't know. It's like really, like I said, sky's the limit. Yeah. I don't know what else you could possibly do. And I don't know how you do it all. Cause that, you know, I think I'm busy, but that's incredible. Like you got boatloads of energy and it's fantastic. Um, I imagine that as you've talked about your music and your writing and some of that, can people hear that online? Do you have, is that out there to where they can go find it? Yeah, I actually have music on Spotify and Apple Music. Um, and it's just under my name. It's just Laura Beth Burkhalter. Um, so I chose I chose to go by like my my birth name because when I was modeling and performing as a kid, they kept forcing me to change it because they said it like wasn't high fashion enough. So it's kind of like a snub, like I am enough. And so mm -hmm. I'm doing it like under my birth name. So yeah, check it out. It's real sad. <laughs> but <laughs> But I promise it's, uh, I've grown a lot. So, you know, don't be sad for me. <laughs> oh, that's incredible. Um, Laura, thanks for coming and sharing your incredible story and your vitality, um, your enthusiasm for this work and, and all of the things that, that make you who you are. I mean, it's contagious for sure. And like, I feel like I'm your best friend now. I want, I want more, right? I want more of Laura. <laughs> um, but thanks for being on and sharing all that. And um, I have no doubt that people are going to reach out because because um, you have you have a lot to give and you've already given a, a ton. So thanks. Thanks, Shelly. Thanks, Kurt. Like, I, I just I really appreciate you guys asking me to be here and you giving people a voice to share some of this stuff is huge. So thank you for your work as well. Um, yep. This was awesome. Oh. Thanks, Obi.